Well, good morning, everyone. If you could please open your Bibles to James chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12 in James chapter 5. I've titled this message, Until the Coming of the Lord, and we're looking forward to that day. Uh, pray with me once again. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we, we are in so much need of your presence now, Lord. This world is becoming more and more evil, God. We are facing difficult times and circumstances. Lord, we can't wait until that day when you come for us, your people. Lord, until then, we pray that you would help us to just wait upon you, keep our eyes focused on you. And Lord, right now we're here, we ask that you'd speak to us through your word. In your precious name we pray, amen. Until the coming of the Lord is a phrase that we're going to see two times in this text. The word coming literally means presence. So it could be translated until the presence of the Lord. It speaks of the future visible return from heaven of Jesus the Messiah when he will come back to earth and set up formally and gloriously the kingdom of God. A book written by David Jeremiah titled Agents of the Apocalypse is a great read. I just wanted to share a few facts that uh, David Jeremiah gives to us from that book. He writes, Christians are familiar with the first coming of our Lord to Bethlehem as recorded in the Gospels. But people are often surprised to learn that references to the second coming outnumber references to the first by a factor of eight to one. Scholars have identified 1,845 biblical references to the second coming. In the Old Testament, Christ's return is emphasized in no less than 17 books, and in the New Testament, authors speak of it in 23 of the 27 books. Seven out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament mention Christ's return. In other words, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament teach us about the return of Christ to this earth. In First and Second Thessalonians, the first two books written for the early church uh, speak of Christ's return in every single chapter. The Lord himself referred to his return 21 times. The second coming is second only to salvation as the most dominant subject of the New Testament. The fact that Christ's second coming features so prominently in Scripture is an indication that this event is so important to God, and as a result, it should be just as important to us. And we look forward to that, to that day Jude, in verses 14 and 15, writes of that day, saying this, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
The Lord's second coming has been waited, awaited ever since he ascended. When he was leaving the earth, ascending into heaven, his people, men, disciples were gazing at him as he rose up into heaven. An angel spoke to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And surely as we wait for his coming, as we wait for that glorious appearing, many will mock, many have mocked, and many will say, well, where, where's this promise? Peter speaks of that. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That day is going to be a day like no other. I want to read to you a few verses out of Romans chapter 19. And this is John writing of what he sees at that second coming of Christ. And he says this in, Ro- in Revelation chapter 19. He says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you imagine that, brothers and sisters? The first time we think Jesus came and we think of him as a baby, we think of him as coming in swaddling clothes, we think of the humble servant as he came to give his life a ransom for you and I. We remember him as riding into town on the colt of a donkey. But when he comes the second time, it is completely different. It's something that we eagerly look forward to and not only us but Paul says in Romans that all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are can you imagine after Jesus comes when he comes for that second time that second coming he will set up his kingdom and it will be a time when Satan is no longer ruling in this world It'll be a time when there is justice, there is righteousness, no more evil politicians, no more judges abusing the law or the system. Everything will be righteous because Jesus himself will be ruling and reigning on the earth. Can you imagine what that would be like? Are you looking forward to that day? Aren't we? James 
speaks to us as a person who at first who didn't believe in his own half-brother. As a person who until Jesus appeared to him after Jesus had risen from the dead, from that point on, James believed that Jesus was the Messiah. A lot of the words that James writes in the book of James are direct references to what Jesus said on the Mount, on the Sermon on the Mount. James is telling us, he is waiting with expectancy, and he's telling us, until that day, until the coming of the Lord, this is what you must do. And I just want to share with you, I see three things here that he tells us to do. Number one, he says we are to be patient. Number two, he says we are to endure. And number three, James shares we are to trust. We are to trust in the Lord and in his timing. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 of James chapter 5. It says this, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So first of all, that word be patient It comes from two words, the first word meaning long in the Greek, the second word meaning suffering. And so James is saying, be long-suffering. Set your mind for the long haul. Think about the final lap that you're going to have to run in this race called life. James is saying, think about that day when he will be coming again. And be patient. And he gives us an example. First of all, he says, see the farmer. You know, the farmer was 100% dependent upon God and God's timing. The farmer in those days, in that region, he would plant. And right at planting, which for them was around October, was the first rain. And it would water the seeds that he would plant. Later, that latter rain that James refers to in that area would take place around late April or early May, which was just before they would harvest their crop. And so without those two rains, the farmer had no hope of raising a good crop. There was nothing he could do. There was nothing he could do to force it to rain. He just had to wait upon God's timing when God would ordain For those rains to come. And the same way what James is telling us is this. We are to wait and trust God in circumstances over which we have no control. Things happen out of our control. What we need to do is patiently wait. Now if you think about a farmer. He's lazy isn't he? No he's not right. Farmers wanted to beat me up right now. If you think about a farmer, they are hard-working year-round. They work the soil. They plow it. They till it. Then they plant it, right? And then they have to take care of the weeds, and then they water it again, and then they're, they're constantly working. And the idea is, see the farmer, how he is actively waiting 
for those rains to come, for God to send those rains. And that is how you and I should be until the day of the coming of the Lord. We should be actively waiting for him. James gives us another example. Look at verses 9 and 10. James says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. It's interesting that he starts by saying, in reference to the prophets, don't grumble against one another. That could be translated, don't complain about one another. Uh, One Greek lexicon said it could refer to praying while sighing. In other words, when you're praying for somebody. For example, oh Lord, and that James, Lord, would you please give him a clue as to why he is so annoying for crying out loud, right? If your name is James, I just made that name up, okay? I'm not talking about you. It could refer to groaning associated with complaints a believer has against another believer. And so, in view of the hope of Christ's soon return, believers should seize all the petty conflicts that come between them and others. Like children in a classroom without a teacher looking out the door, waiting just in case the teacher gets back, you and I should be waiting expectantly patiently not arguing not complaining because the lord could come back at any moment impatience with god could actually many times be the root of impatience with god's people when you are impatient with a person when you are impatient with a circumstance ultimately you're saying god why haven't you done something already and you're being impatient with god He mentions the prophets, and certainly the prophets, they were treated harshly. If you think about the prophets, they went through so much. They had to put up with so much. They had to put up with the people. There's a story of a woman who was waiting at an airport, and her plane, her flight got delayed several hours. So she went shopping and found a good book that she could read. She bought a book. She bought a bag of cookies. Of course, all the seats hard to find a seat in the airport it's packed she finally found a seat gets into her book and she's reading this book and she's just loving the book but this man comes and sits next to this woman and for crying out loud he starts getting cookies from the bag and as she's reading her book she's thinking to herself I can't believe this man what kind of rude person would come and steal my cookies like this. And so over and over, it seemed like for every one cookie that she got, he would get two. Finally, as she's trying to just ignore the man, she realizes there's one cookie left, and she thinks to herself, I wonder what he's going to do now. The man reaches into the bag, breaks the last cookie in half, and kind of with a nervous laugh, offers her the other half. She snatches the that half of the cookie away. And just at that moment, they call her flights and they say, hey, it's time to go ahead and load up. So she gathers her stuff. She marches away, doesn't even look at this man, 
gets into the airplane, sits down, reaches down to grab her book. And as she looks in her, ba- in her bag, she gasped. <gasps> her full unopened bag of cookies were staring at her, judging her from her purse. Many times we grow impatient and we're the ones that require patience of others. Amen? We, we blow it, right? We're not perfect, right? We must be patient. I think about, you think about prophets. Imagine Moses. Moses was with the people throughout the wilderness time for 40 years. Moses had to endure all the complaining and all the grumbling of the people from the moment they left Egypt. Moses! Moses! Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? Moses, we had food in Egypt, Moses. Moses, what is this? Manna, what is it, Moses? Oh, quail, lovely. Moses, how long are we going to have to have this now? Moses, could you imagine? Poor Moses, right? Patiently dealt with the people for 40 years. You think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah known as the weeping prophet, was thrown into a well, a mud well, a well that was empty, left to die. Daniel was cast into the lion's den. Zechariah sealed his testimony with his blood. Jesus himself said, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so James says, look at the prophets. Don't grumble. Look at the prophets. Look at what they had to put up with. Look at what they dealt with. Encouragements that we get as we look at the prophets, well, for one, they went through sufferings and trials and persecution while they were walking in the will of God. You know, many Christians think that just because I have surrendered my life to him and I'm going to follow him, that there's going to be no valleys, there's going to be no trials, there's going to be no tribulations. But that's not the case. Don't be tempted to think, if you're going through difficulties, that God doesn't care about you anymore. Don't be tempted to think, well, God, what did I do to you now? Kind of thing. Those are lies from the enemy. So we get that encouragement from them. Another encouragement that we get as we look at the pain and suffering that the prophets experienced was we see that God cares for us when we go through sufferings for his sake. For example, Elijah. Elijah announced to the wicked king Ahab that there would be a drought in the land for three and a half years, and Elijah himself would have to suffer through that drought. But God cared for him. God gave him even victory over the evil priests of Baal. Think of, again, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was arrested as a traitor, thrown into an abandoned well, left to die. But God fed Jeremiah and protected him throughout the terrible siege of Jerusalem, even though at times it looked as though the prophet was going to be killed. Consider Ezekiel. And Daniel, they also had their share of hardships, but the Lord delivered them. And in the same way, as we go through this waiting period, there's going to be trials 
and, and difficulties, but God is going to care for you through those sufferings. Encouragement that we get from the prophets. Why do we go through these things? Wearsby suggests this. It's often so that our lives can back up the message that we preach. The impact of a faithful, godly life carries much power. We need to remind ourselves that our patience in times of suffering is a testimony to others around us. When you and I, as believers in Christ, go through difficulties and we stay trusting in him, looking to him, we receive his peace and his care, that is a testimony to the world around you, showing the faithfulness of God. And so we are told by James, until the coming of the Lord, see the farmer, be actively waiting for the Lord in his perfect timing, look at the prophets as an example of suffering and patience, and then he's going to share the second thing, we must endure until that day comes. The word endure, we're going to see one Greek word in this next verse translated two different ways in English. The first way, the first word is the word endure. The second word is the word perseverance. It means literally to remain under. And the idea is to persevere under misfortunes to persevere under trials, to hold fast to one's faith in Christ. Look at verse 11 with me. James says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. And so James is teaching us that there is a blessing after we have endured. And his example is Job. Now you think about Job. I don't think any of us in here could say that we've been through as much as Job went through. Not to say you haven't been through trials and tribulations. But Job, if you look at the book of Job, in the first three chapters, he loses everything. He loses all of his wealth. And he wasn't a poor man. Money wasn't his God, but he wasn't poor. He lost it all. He lost all of his family, his kids, he lost all of his family except for his wife, who, by the way, basically told him to just commit suicide, curse God and die already, she told him. And he lost his health, all taken from Job in one day, just gone. World turned upside down. Then we see for the next 28 or so chapters, Job offering a defense to his friends, debating with them, answering their false accusations. And it isn't until the end of the book of Job that we see God does humble Job, but God honors Job and he gives him twice as much as he had before. And so here's what we are called to do. We are called to trust God to have a good purpose, even in the midst of circumstances that we do not understand. We're called to trust God to have a good purpose, even in the midst of circumstances that we do not understand. You know, though he complained, Job never lost his faith in God. 
He believed in God even though he could not understand his sufferings. He continued to have hope in God and God alone. And James is saying, until that coming day of the Lord, endure like Job. And just like Job, in the end, there's going to be a blessing for you. Now, through that experience of Job, James says that we get a glimpse a better understanding of God's personality, God's character. Look at verse 11 again with me. James says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the, in the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And so we see here that phrase, The end intended by the Lord. And in Job's case, the end intended by the Lord was that the Lord would reveal himself as very compassionate and very merciful. And certainly there were other benefits that Job experienced after all that he went through. You know, he knew God in a new way, a deeper way than he wouldn't have otherwise. And At the end, he did get double blessings. He did get blessed double more than what he had before everything that he had been through. But we see here that God had that that compassion and that mercy. and, And we see God's character there. Now, bear with me. I looked up that word compassionate. I looked up that phrase, very compassionate and merciful. And that, that means to be full of pity. It means to be very kind. It pertains to a great affection and compassion. The New Living Translation translates it as tenderness. I looked up other verses that use that same word for compassion. And in all of these verses, what I see is this tenderness, this brokenheartedness for another person. Or for another group of people. This love and care and compassion and pity. And just a few examples. Think of the prodigal son. When he's coming back to his father and he's prepared the, the, uh, the message he wants to give to his father. And just say, Dad, I, he, I know I've blown it. I'm not worthy to be welcomed back of your, as your son. But if I could just be your servant. And we read in Luke chapter 15. As he arose and came to his father. That when he was still a great way away off, his father saw him and had compassion. Same word. Had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Another example in Mark chapter 6 about Jesus. It says, Jesus, when he came out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Again, in Matthew chapter 14, last verse, I want to share about that word. When Jesus went out and he saw the great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. And so we see God looking with compassion, with pity, Sorry for what they're going through, for what they're experiencing. And that is what we learn from all of that experience 
that Job went through. Now, you might be thinking, well, how does that show God's compassion and mercy? If that's God's compassion and mercy, then I want none of it. Well, one commentator put it like this. God's compassion is shown in the life of Job in that God didn't lay more trials on Job than he was able to bear. You know, if Satan would have had his way, it had just kept on going and going, but God put a stop to it and said, no more. That's enough for my servant. So his compassion is shown in that way, and also his mercy is shown in giving Job a joyful end to those trials. And so Job got to know the Lord in a special way. Cool verse in in, uh, Job chapter 42. Job says to God, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. There were blessings for Job in the end. And so we are to... Be patient until that coming day of the Lord. We are to see the farmer and be busy and working, actively waiting. We are to be patient and look at the prophets and not grumble against one another and be faithful in our witness. We are to endure just like Job endured and realize that there is a blessing coming in the end. And the last thing that I see in this text is we are to trust the Lord for his perfect timing. You know, when you find yourself in the fire, remember that God keeps his gracious hand on the thermostat. Satan wants us to get impatient with God. For an impatient Christian is a powerful weapon in his hands. And you think about moments that we read about in scripture of people when they lost their patience and the blessings that they were robbed of. You think of Moses, his impatience robbed him of a trip to the Holy Land. You think of Abraham, his impatience led to the birth of Ishmael, whose descendants would become the enemy of the Jews. You think about Peter, if it wasn't for the fact that he was horrible, he had a horrible aim with his sword, his impatience almost made him a murderer. We have to be patient and trust in the Lord. When Satan attacks us, it's easy for us to get impatient, try and run ahead of God, and lose God's blessing as a result. Look at verse 8 with me one more time. James says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That phrase, establish your hearts, means to strengthen. Strengthen your hearts. It means to make stable. It means to have an unwavering confidence. Other translations of the Bible put it like this. Don't lose heart. Stand firm. Don't give up. Trust and wait in God's promises. Become stronger in the sense of being more firm and unchanging in attitude or belief. Establish your hearts, for that day can happen anytime. As we are trusting in him, James finally says that we are to be a careful representative of Christ. Look at verse 12. James says, but above all, my brethren... 
Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. At times of distress, Christians could easily use God's name in a careless and irreverent way, and we need to be careful not to do that. The soon return of the Lord, the judge who stands at the door, is motivation enough for our honesty and trustworthiness, lest we be condemned. And so we're to establish our hearts. We're to be careful representatives of him. Until the coming of the Lord, James says, be patient. It's a glorious day that's coming, but be patient. See the farmer. Be actively waiting for him. Don't be sitting on your behind doing nothing. Be active and waiting. Trust in his timing. Be patient. Look at the prophets. Don't complain against one another. Be faithful in your testimony. Until the coming of the Lord, endure. Think of Job. Remember Job. Endure those times of trials and tribulations and trust God and his purposes. And we're to trust God. I want to close with one final thought. As we think through this, as we receive what James tells us. By the way, these aren't suggestions. If you think of it, James is writing these and they're commands. Be patient. Endure. Establish your hearts. The last thing I would say is that we should always remember. Always remember the cross of Calvary. The next time that you're going through trials and difficulties, uh, you're going through tough times. If we let the devil, he will always have us drawing false conclusions about God on the basis of our burdens and trials. And when we are tempted to think that our circumstances are such that they could not conceivably come from the hand of a good God, we must remember the cross of Calvary. That is where God forever declared how he feels about you. That is where he put his only son there to bear the wrath of God in your place. We must say, God did so much for me there that I could never question his love for me. God did so much for me there that if he chooses to do nothing else for me at all, I will still have cause to praise him forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as a people who live in this fallen world. And God, we cannot wait until you come and set all things straight. Oh, Lord, all the injustice that is in our world today. All of the evil and the sin and Lord, how just as you said would happen, evil has, is being called good and good is being called evil. Lord, oh Lord, we cannot wait for your coming. We look forward to that time when you are ruling and you are reigning, God. But until that day, God, Lord, we pray for your help to just to be patient. Lord, for your help to endure Lord, may we never give in to the temptation of thinking that you've left us, that you don't love us anymore. 
Lord, we know that you have a purpose for everything. And you can use even our times in those valleys. Lord, you can use those for your glory. You can use those for good. God, help us to remember that without battles, there can be no victories. Without valleys, there can be no peaks. Lord, help us to persevere. And Lord, we always will remember what you did for us on that cross, on the mountain of Calvary. Lord, if that's all you would have done for us, it would have been more than sufficient. But Lord, you do so much more. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I want to communicate to those who have not entrusted their life to Christ. If you're here and you have not surrendered your life to him, you are facing trials and tribulations and difficulties on your own. You will go through tough times, but you will have to experience them without God there helping you. And you don't want to live the rest of your life like that. I would invite you to ask him to be your Lord and your Savior this morning. The hope that we read about of his second coming is something that is a hope for believers, but for the non-believer, that is a time that would bring much fear because that brings the time of judgment upon all those who rejected Christ. Don't be in that group that has rejected Christ. Surrender your life to him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're going through difficult times. And perhaps you're doing that without him. Surrender your life to him right now. And if you want to do that, say this simple prayer in your heart and just sincerely tell him, Lord, I need you. I ask that you would forgive me of all of my sins, Lord, that you would give me everlasting life. Lord, I believe that you are my Lord and Savior, that you, you came to pay the price for my sins. And I want to trust in you with all of my heart for the rest of my life. Lord, all of the things that lie before me, I put into your hands and I ask that you would be there to lead me, guide me, and give me that hope that we have of the future. Lord, we look to you this morning. And we thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.